This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here are your hosts, Jeff Deist and Dr. Bob Murphy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again. It is the Human Action Podcast, joined by my colleague, my co-host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Bob, we're fresh off a Twitter Spaces earlier this week, which I think was pretty successful on this whole topic of whether the Silicon Valley Bank and the Signature Bank and some of these other tremors we've seen in the retail and commercial banking market uh, make any statements about uh, the nature of fractional reserve banking, whether they help make the case for reconsidering full reserve banking, which as a practice anyway, has been largely dead in the water and, and not uh, easily licensed by the Fed. So bef- to get into the whole conundrum with SVB, I want to start by just uh, telling people to go to your uh, Twitter profile where you pinned at the top your basic introductory course or thread on a maturity mismatch. And so can you just really quickly walk us through this problem, which SVB had and other banks potentially have, but also the inverse relationship between bond prices and bond yields or interest rates? Yeah, sure. So I think um, everybody has heard people just matter-of-factly say on CNBC or whatever, oh yeah, as, as interest rates rise, bond prices go down. But I think it, it helps just to go through a particular example, because I know I personally, that didn't really click until I just thought it through. And why is that? So imagine you have some asset that pays $1,000 a year forever. And the question is, how much should you be willing to pay for that right now, spot price? Well, if interest rates are 5%, let's say, then the, it would be $20,000. And the way to think through that is just imagine, you know, if you have $20,000 and it's yielding 5% a year, well, 5% of 20000 is 1000 Okay, and so that it makes sense that ah yeah, so something with a market value right now of twenty thousand at a five percent annual interest rate should be kicking off a thousand dollars of income, and so that's why this asset that we just assume pays a thousand dollars, you know, it's guaranteed, you know, it's very safe. You're not worried about it defaulting. It has a market value of twenty thousand. Now, if interest rates go up to ten percent, though, that same asset, which again, what the asset promises you is every year you get a thousand dollar payment. The twenty thousand, which is how much we valued it. At 5%, if interest rates happen to jump to 10% now, that same stream of cash flows only has a market value of 10000 And again, because think of it, if you if interest rates are 10% and you had $10,000, you could buy a bond from somebody that's giving you $1,000 a year. You could put it in a, you know, a bank account or something yielding 10%, 10000 would shoot off 1000 a year. So that same cash flow that yields 1000 a year is only worth 10000 now if interest rates are 10%. So in this particular example... When the interest rate doubled from 5% to 10%, the value of our hypothetical asset got cut in half. Okay, it, just so people don't get confused, if the reason there was that exact correspondence that a doubling of the interest rate meant a halving of the asset price is because I assumed it paid it forever. If it only paid it for 10 years and then you got your principal back, the, it wouldn't be as big of a shift. It wouldn't be as you know proportional. So to see now what happened, and this you know ties into what happened with SVP, Suppose somebody has $22,000 in cash. They go to a bank. They deposit it in a checking account. Mm-hmm. The bank says, okay, we'll put $2,000 aside for safekeeping in the vault, like literal pieces of paper, $100 bills in the vault, and we'll take the $20,000 and we'll go buy some bond that pays $1,000 a year when interest rates are 5%. So that that's what costs the $20,000. Now, if interest rates go up to 10%, up the value of that bond drops to 10000 as we've seen. So if that customer shows up at the bank teller window and says, give me my money back, look at 
my, you know, I just went to the ATM and it says I have $22,000 on deposit and your checking account. I'd like it, please. They've got the 2000 in the vault. Even if they go sell that bond off because they have to come up with the cash. Now we just said they paid 20 for it yesterday. Interest rates jumped. Now they can only fetch 10,000 when they go to sell it. And so they only have 12,000 total. You know, the gap there is because the bond dropped $10,000 in price. So that in essence is what happens when there's maturity mismatch when banks borrow short and lend long. And what I want to emphasize on this is notice in the example there, it's not like the 08 crisis when people had bad real estate investments and the housing market crashed. Like there are people kind of understood, oh yeah, if you lent money on mortgages and then the real estate market crashes, you screwed up. But here it's not that the assets that SVP owned were were bad risk. The, they they didn't default. It's not like they they went under and they invested in shady operations. Well, you could say the U.S. government's shady, but you know what I mean. It's just that it was it's what's called interest rate risk. So it's a different type of risk, and that's what really hit them pretty hard. Right. So back in the mid two thousands, there was credit risk because you were loaning money to you know taxi cab drivers to buy ten condos with right. no money down and no. Uh, pr proof of income. And so you had non-performing mortgages, oftentimes bundled into mortgage-backed securities, which are some of the toxic assets that the Fed was buying. So yes, it's different in that sense. But what, what is it about SVB in particular that led people to want to demand their deposits all seemingly at once? Sure. So there, it was like a one-two punch with SVP. Like in other words, what, if I just you know people might be if I just got through saying SVP wasn't investing in any like particularly risky things from a credit worthiness standpoint. It's not that they're, the borrowers defaulted. You might people say, well, then why did they go under? How come other banks didn't? Mm -hmm. So there's a one-two punch that on their um, yes, their asset side, Jeff, like you say, they invested in longer term treasuries than the average bank did, right? So the, um, also some uh, typical banks, some of the things they get into, even if it's like a long-term loan, it has terms in it that the interest rate resets as, as market rates rise. Whereas with this, it was just fixed. You know, if they mm -hmm. bought a, whatever, a 20-year treasury, the interest rate's locked in. And so I think their average duration on their bond portfolio was like six years and change. So that, okay. that shows why they were more vulnerable to rising interest rates, whereas other banks... Yeah, they had a bunch of treasuries too, but they were tended to be more shorter term and those aren't as susceptible. Their their market price doesn't move as much in response to a given change in interest rates. So that was one thing. But then on the flip side, SVP's customers tended to be um, like tech companies, startups. And um, so that, you know, just painting with broad brushstrokes here in that industry, when interest rates are really low, it's easy for them to get funding, not just from conventional banks, but also from like venture capital funds and things. Because it, you know, when interest rates are near zero, it's sort of like the present and the distant future are interchangeable. So a dollar today is almost like a dollar 20 years from now if interest rates are at rock bottom levels. And so that's what a, you know, a startup that's mm -hmm. doing AI and all these buzzwordy things, venture capitalists know, okay, we'll pump in a bunch of money to a bunch of these different projects and if just one of them's a home run 10 years from now, that will pay for the other ones that all go belly up. And so they're happy to fund those things to pay the salaries, you know, of the programmers and whoever who have to work on the thing until they bring it to market. But then when interest rates start rising, that seems like a, a bad bet. You know, you know, why don't I just go earn 7% at fairly safe terms rather than pumping it into this thing that may, may hit a home run, but may strike out. And so in 2022, apparently a lot of the customers, which were these tech companies, who banked at SVP 
they had you know had been carrying large balances and checking accounts and started drawing it down as they had to keep paying salaries and stuff for their employees and their outside funding dried up. So that was the one-two punch that SVP's assets fell more compared to the typical bank. And mm-hmm. they had more people, not because of a run, but just because they needed to use up their cash, drawing down their deposits in 2022. And that's why they were more. And then once there's blood in the water, given the nature of fractional reserve banking, then you know once they got in trouble and started announcing write downs and having to sell off some of their bonds to pay the depositors and realize those losses, then they're in big trouble. Because the, the conventional banking sector has like over $600 billion in unrealized losses on treasuries. It's just if they can get by without having to sell them off, they don't have to realize it yet. Whereas SVP had to start selling just to pay people, you know, their, their checking account balances withdrawals. Well, when you say when there's blood in the water, also the digital age increases the speed at which investors, depositors, insiders can talk to one another. And mm. perhaps uh, over the weekend, or certainly after Thursday, we have some anecdotal evidence that a lot of people, at, depositors at SVB, were talking to one another and saying, oh my gosh, uh, how do we get our money out quickly? And, and it wasn't as easy as they thought it would be, you know, just press a couple buttons and transfer your funds from one bank to another. Uh, some of those funds were frozen uh, during this process of FDIC takeover. So that's interesting. It's also, I think, worth noting, Bob, that these were rel- relative to most banks, like your local credit union or savings and loan, or even the local branch of your big national B of A or PNC or whatever, it appears that Silicon Valley Bank had particularly sophisticated depositors for the most part. In other words, people uh, in the venture capital industry, people with fairly large balances well above the $250,000 FDIC limit. And if we're talking about operating accounts for you know, uh, active businesses, 250 is not all that much. That's not like an individual, right? I mean, that's a different Mm -hmm. kind of account. And so they should have known better uh, when it comes to those FDIC limits. But as we saw in the Fed's press release over the weekend, the Fed was a bit opaque, but they just, and it was an extraordinary weekend for the Fed. That's an extraordinary press release. Uh, it, It harkens back to the period around the Lehman Brothers crash, actually. Uh, but they said, no, we're going to make all the depositors whole, but we're not going to bail out the shareholders and the investors and the management. O- okay, fair enough. But that's still a bailout in the sense that depositors will get paid in full above, well above 250000 uh, regardless of their level of sophistication or trust. And also, when the next bank failure comes as a political matter, how are you ever going to say, well, okay, well, this time we are limiting it to two hundred fifty. That's all you get, folks. Because now forever and ever, people can just say, well, what about SVB? But I, I just want to make sure you know, that you and I are on the same page, Bob, about this facility, which the Fed, again, threw together over the weekend. So basically, in your scenario, the bank's holding a bunch of assets in terms of, uh, let's say, treasury debt that are worth half what they used to be because interest rate has doubled, let's just say. So the Fed comes along and says, well, we already have this this 90-day discount window. Uh, so that already exists. But, you know, after all the, the shenanigans of 2008 and all the QE since then, we, you know, we, we kind of discourage that. There's a, a little bit of a stigma. Uh, if you have to go to the discount window, that suggests that you're uh, not, not necessarily insolvent, but, you, you know, you're crunched for liquidity. So banks don't love that. That's not good PR for the system. So what they've essentially done is taken that 90-day window and extended it out to a year. So you got a full year now. They call this a BTFP. 
the bank term funding program. So, okay, so now you have a year. So what happens is, let's say a bank holds a treasury that's face value 100, they paid 100 for it, it spins off whatever interest it does, but it's only worth 60 now on the market. Well, the Fed has essentially said, look, if a bunch of depositors come calling and want their money, you know, we'll loan you 100 on that bond. We'll loan you the full face value, what you paid at par, 100 on it, even though it's only worth 60. Now, that, 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 that's collateral. It remains on the balance sheet of the borrowing bank. It doesn't go over to the Fed's balance sheet. But nonetheless, uh, the Fed, ha as a matter of fact, has an asset on its balance sheet now alone. But what the Fed's effectively done, in other words, the economic substance of what they've done, not the mechanics, is they've loaned you 100 for something that's worth 60. So they've given you a 60, 60 collateralized or secured loan and a 40 unsecured loan. And the Treasury has come along and said, well, we're going we're gonna to guarantee the 40. We're going to guarantee the unsecured portion of it. And we'll use our exchange stabilization fund or whatever we have to do. And what people need to understand is the Treasury is us. Okay? The Treasury is you and me. Government doesn't have money. It doesn't have resources. It doesn't have assets beyond what it pulls out of the private economy. So that's us. So we, whenever you see the Treasury, you should always basically think the taxpayer. So it's a very unusual uh, situation in that the Fed is not supposed to be making unsecured loans, for one. Number mm -hmm. two is through its actions over the weekend, it de facto said that the $250,000 FDIC limit does not apply, or at least will not in this particular circumstance. From my perspective, that's also an illegal act. In other words, Congress has to vote. The person you sent to Washington on your behalf is your representative is supposed to vote on whether he raised the FDIC limit. That's not under the Fed's purview. So, you know, legally speaking, and also from a, a political and perception standpoint, uh, this was a pretty rough weekend, I would have to say. Yeah, you yeah, you raise a lot of good points there, Jeff, just to respond to some of them. So, right, just on the narrow issue of that, the, the 250K limit and, you know, people were all oh, these fat cats. And so... It, it is like you can kind of see both perspectives that there were, you know, there were, I'm sure you've seen anecdotes of there was some school that located 3000 miles away from Silicon Valley and their payroll was tied up in the SVP and they would have to lay off all the teachers and things like that. Um, another element to this that, you know, I had been confused about was um, I was wondering too, like uh, the circle, the, the people, the USDC issuers, they had th something like $3.3 .3 billion dollars. Um, SVP. And I was asking, you know, and so they have a much, you know, the other reserves too. Like that wasn't, you know, that was just a, a, sm a small percentage of their overall, but still to me that, geez, that seemed like a lot of money to have at one bank. Um, and so, but a lot of these tech, I don't know about circle per se, but a lot of the companies that had credit relations with SVP, apparently one of the covenants in the deal was you got to bank with us, you know, you park your deposits here. So for some of these companies, if people are confused, like why would they have you know, why wouldn't they keep one month of payroll in each of four different banks? And then they got four months, right? And apparently they weren't allowed, a lot of these companies weren't allowed to do that. And, you know, when, at the time when you're not, you're thinking, and especially if you was like, well, what does SVP invest in? If you actually did the research, oh, they're dumping it all in treasuries that might have seemed pretty safe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so that's part of the story. Um, but, but yeah, you're right, Jeff, like just even a small company that's got 20 employees, they could easily need more than a million just to have a, a, you know, a month of payroll and change, sure. and which is not a big deal at all. I keep quote in your checking account. 
Um, and yes, as far as the legality, uh, I raised this as, as you know, in the, the money mechanics book that I wrote for the Mises Institute that there, you know, there are legal scholars who argue that back during the 08 crisis, how the fed came in and started buying up so-called toxic assets, like the mortgage backed securities and thing that that was arguably illegal too. the feds not supposed to be buying those kinds of assets because the the temptation for corruption is too great. You you wouldn't want the central bank to be able to come in and just start buying, you know, GE stock or something. That that seems crazy. And um so the way they got around it, the Fed is allowed though to to lend to organizations like you say with collateral. And so what they did is they created this Maiden Lane LLC. Maiden Lane happens to be, you know, near Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And so the Maiden Lane LLC would go out and buy the mortgage-backed securities, and the Fed w- would just lend money to the Maiden Lane. And so, so that was the shenanigans. But yet, if you go to the Fed website and look at their balance sheet, they've got those mortgage-backed securities listed. So it's kind of like, you know, who are they kidding? But apparently that's what they had to do for the legality of it or the dubious legality of it. So I, I you're right. The, the things you brought up here um, – the Fed's not just supposed to give an unsecured loan to somebody, or that's at least a qualitatively different type of thing, and that's effectively what they're doing. What the, what the defenders of that say is to you know reassure people there's no risk, is they say, look, at, even if these companies that these banks that pledge, like you say, treasuries that they bought at 100, mm-hmm. right now they're trading at 70, um, but the Fed's lending 100 against it. Let's say they can't pay the loan back. The Fed takes control of what the collateral was. They say, well, the, the, that's not a loss. The Fed will just hold it to maturity. So it will pay 100 eventually, and it's the Fed's the Fed, so they can just sit on it. So the, so that's what the defenders of this are saying. They're saying, but but you're right in terms of when you do the accounting, strictly speaking, they are you know doing a partially unsecured loan. Well, there's also the sense in which the Fed operates under a particular and very peculiar set of accounting rules, which it has changed over the years. And, and under those rules, it's not required to mark to market assets on its balance sheet. So when it bought all that, what we might consider toxic mortgage debt back in the 08 crash crisis, uh, it, you know, it, it didn't have to immediately mark that stuff to market. And it also paid full dollar to like B of A, who, who mm-hmm. had to absorb Countrywide, which was full of bad mortgage debt. And what I'm struck with, Bob, is that there's, there's an insider elitist smell to all of this, when you talk about the investors and the depositors at SVB, I mean, I'm hearing anecdotally that people like Oprah Winfrey and Prince Harry had a bunch of money there, and nobody I know had any money there whatsoever. So this almost feels a little bit like the Madoff era. In other mm-hmm. words, there was some sort of insider knowledge, and this this bank was too good to be true somehow. Uh, so that that strikes me as, as noteworthy. Uh, the other bank that failed... Uh, or the, that was overtaken by the Fed, Signature Bank. Uh, Barney Frank was a principal in. A lot of people remember him, a very famous congressman from Massachusetts, who at one point was chairman of the House Banking Committee. So definitely an insider type. who should co-author have, of the Dodd-Frank Act. Right, who should have known better. Uh, so that's, that's all interesting. But I noticed over the weekend that there was a lot of debate back and forth, and there are full reserve banking champions like Caitlin Long, who has uh, opened a bank in chartered by the state of Wyoming called Custodia, which is a, which would would be a full reserve bank. And as a matter of fact, uh, their practice is to keep a dollar and eight cents uh, on hand for every dollar in deposits. 
we all understand that you know a full reserve bank where you were allowed to just park your money safely, whether that was physical cash in a physical uh, safe location or whether that means you're you know for most most uh, currency is digital now, but whether that means their server or their cloud is secured, and in exchange for paying a fee, maybe one or two percent a year, you would get uh, banking services, you would be able to write checks, you would be able to do wire, you know that people would pay to basically warehouse and safeguard their money. I mean that's an old concept, but not really an operative one. Uh, but I also saw people from the free banking school uh, getting a bit defensive on Twitter over the weekend and saying, oh, no, no, this, isn't, this bank run doesn't really mean anything, and this was a unique situation. And so there's this question, Bob, uh, do, do bank runs uh, destroy banks, or do bad business practices create bank runs, right? I mean, mm. that's, it's sort of which comes first. Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, I'll be a typical economist and say, well, although on the one hand, on the other hand, you well, know, what it's, is it's the, what does the diamond dibvig uh, uh, model tell us? In other words, there are two of the economists, along with Ben Bernanke, who won a Nobel just last fall for their work on preventing or under, at least understanding bank runs. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, there it's it's amazing as, as you and I talked about at the time when when they won it, and you know they were they were playing some interviews. I, I can't remember if it was diamond or dibvig. I think it was Divvig. Um, and it was just the, the most elementary, like he was just explaining to people how maturity mismatch worked. And and it was like, oh my goodness, there's so many implications from that. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like this is stuff like Rothbard wrote this up in like, you know, pop essays back in the day. But mm-hmm. um, yes, so um, distilled down, I think, yeah, the Diamond Divvig model focuses on, you know, the essence of it is the maturity mismatch aspect that they're saying, the economic function that banks provide us is that, hey, people want to have immediate access to their money, but there's long-term investments that need to be funded, and that's what banks do. Okay, mm-hmm. and and so I so from an Austrian or at least let's say a Rothbardian perspective, I could say a Misesian too because I think there's a strong case that you know he was on board with this stuff. It's not merely Rothbard's take. Um, that you, you got to be careful there that no, there's two separate things that banks do. One is like warehousing services, checking accounts, demand deposits, and those sh- should be hundred percent reserve. And then there's also like a credit intermediary function where people want to save over here, but they can't identify who the, you know, they're not in the position to evaluate the people applying for mortgages, what their credit worthiness is. And there's, it's too risky. If one couple goes in with four other couples and funds one couple's mortgage, that's too risky because if they default, okay. then those five couples' life savings are gone. So that's, but if you're going to do that kind of a model, and banks can do that too, it can all be in the same under the same roof, same types of. But still, that's a separate thing, and so those should be genuine time deposits. Like you, you put your money into a savings account that you can't touch for six months or whatever, or you buy a CD that has certain terms, and then the bank uses that to fund these things, right? So it's not that your checking account is earning interest because it's, it's being used to fund mortgages, right? So I would distinguish it. But to answer your question, sorry about that. The Diamond Divvig, the essence of it is the maturity mismatch. And so, yeah, guys like Selgin want to say, no, 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 that's that's not the way to think about what's going on here. Because, yeah, they since they're in favor of, of under free market, a maturity mismatch happening, that they're okay with fraction reserve banking so long as it's subject to market forces. They want to say, no, 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 it's... Uh, you know, there's problems with the bank. It's not merely fraction reserve banking. So in practice, they're right that when a crisis breaks out, if you just think about it, if every bank in the country is doing fraction reserve banking and things are going along, 
and then all of a sudden there's a problem, there's runs on some of them, the runs are going to be the ones that are doing really dubious stuff besides the fractional reserve banking. Right. Right. I mean, it just makes sense. They're the ones that are going to get the most attention where, where the run will, you know, people will start drawing money out and then the run will, will start there. But the whole system is, is at risk, is vulnerable, whether they worry about contagion because all of it is inherently unstable, right? So it's kind of, they're both sides are right, that Selgin and White are correct in practice, runs start with a dubious bank that's doing stuff that's mm-hmm. risky besides just engaging in fraction reserve banking, but the whole system is still vulnerable. And that's why we, quote, need FDIC and we got to maintain confidence and tell everybody, don't worry, don't worry, this is an isolated thing. You know, so if one restaurant gets in trouble because of food poisoning, it's not that the whole restaurant industry all of a sudden is in danger of going down. So long as the rest of them are like, no, we're not doing that. Yeah. But that's not the case with fractured reserve banking. If if one bank is doing really dubious stuff and then the public gets worried, if they start drawing their money out, all the banks go down. So that's, you know, kind of Rothbard's point. Well, I would argue that the idea that fractional reserve banking is fine or free banking is fine, provided it's subject to market forces, the, the counter argument to that is that we is that we have a Fed. <laughs> Right, so the whole yeah. underpinning, the whole dollar provision structure underpinning the banks is not market, and and that's and obviously that's a debate for another day. Mm-hmm. That's a can of worms, but I do think that there would be a market for uh, full reserve banks, and I do think that the regulatory process has distorted that market or made that virtually impossible, as at least as Caitlin's finding in her case. Yeah, so that that's what I think is interesting about this. Um, you know, these recent episodes, you know, the stuff too, like in the crypto world that was happening um, recently, and a lot of people are saying, this is kind of crazy. Why are we not having at least some exchanges, you know, things that are hundred percent reserved? Mm-hmm. Why, why was the whole point of crypto was to keep your keys, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah. So normally like back when I was in grad school, let's say, which wasn't that long ago, um, the, in the fractional reserve banking debate in the Austrian school, it was that the free bankers kind of had a point where they say, no, nobody, you know, you guys, you're talking about that, but people want to earn interest on their sure. accounts. You know, it's you, nothing. It's not illegal to have 100 percent reserve bank right now. And they choose not to. And, and there were issues with there. Like if the FDIC is covering the losses, then that kind of gives an edge to the people paying interest. Right. If there's no risk. Um, but, yeah, nowadays, like in this in the wake of this, I think plenty of people, especially again, like these companies coming forward and saying, we had our payroll at SVP. Mm-hmm. We weren't trying to do anything risky. Where where do you want me to put my payroll? All the banks do this kind of stuff. You know what I mean? It's not like we were being risky because we wanted to earn higher interest or something on our, even though I think SVP actually was paying more above market rates on, or above the typical rate on their accounts. So there, there is a, something to be said there where a lot of people and like just third party observers saying something seems screwy with this system an employer that just wants to park three months of payroll somewhere has nowhere to go. That's not vulnerable. So I think now people are starting to see that, well, maybe it's not true mm. that in general, there'd be no customer demand for a genuinely hundred percent reserve banking system. And again, like you say, Jeff, that Caitlin, like what, she was applying for a master account or something with the fed. I mean, I, you're right yes. that there's certain practical things. It's not, even though, yes, it's not literally illegal right now to have a hundred percent reserve bank. There are some practical roadblocks. Like you need to get approval and, charters and things and if the authorities don't like that um like i know there was proposals for what was called narrow banking 
several years ago. Yeah, well, there I, were, yeah, right before yeah. before Bitcoin, which is Caitlin's Custodia Bank, is mm-hmm. engineered or designed around the idea of holding Bitcoin as reserve assets. But before Bitcoin, there was a literally called the Narrow Bank, capital yeah. N, capital B, uh, which was turned down by the Feds as well. You can look it up. Yeah, and, and one last point too on this that I stress lately when I'm talking about it is. Um, the the like the free banker critics of like Rothbardians on this stuff will make it sound you know if you listen if you read them and listen that is some cranky thing and come on modern banking relies on maturity mismatch and you know fractures but th- there is a long pedigree of other economists there's a thing because people go Google folks Google the Chicago Plan and mm-hmm. see what that is I think it was in 1933 a bunch of Chicago school economists came out with it. You know, after obviously the bank runs and the the start of the Great Depression, and they yeah. said, you know, maybe we should have 100% reserve banking. That was their proposal. Okay, so this wasn't ideological uh, praxeologists. These were Chicago School economists and recent Nobel laureates, not Diamond Digbig, but earlier. You know, they also had had uh, proposals for. Uh, you know, they call this. I forget the term now. They call it something else, but it was in, in effect, in effect, 100% reserve banking. So this idea keeps coming back. An economist kicked the tires and put it in different theoretical frameworks. But, you know, every time one of these crises hits, people say, why don't we have this option, at least, of some banks that are genuinely 100 percent reserve? Well, an interesting comment on this idea that people want to earn interest. Yes, some people do, certainly. But I do think that there would be a market for this full reserve in the sense that I think Safety and Amos said something the other day on Twitter to the effect, look, if you're a really rich guy, and you had millions and millions of dollars, and, and presumably you'd have investments, but you'd want a certain amount of your net worth in cash as well. He said, you might be willing to pay 5 or even 7% to have that in a bank as opposed to having it in suitcases or whatever mm-hmm. around your house. I mean, you might pay right. a lot. You might pay uh, pretty significant fees if you were wealthy to hold money. Um, and I also you know, just want to point out that this debate has older origins, right? You wrote the study guide to Mises's theory of money and credit. And so some of these things we're talking about today, very interestingly, in the context of Bitcoin, in the context of Custodia Bank, the context of free bankers, I mean, we can, we can go back to the uh, currency school and the banking school, which Mises wrote about, and, and see uh, the threads of this whole debate existed even back then. Yes, uh, that's true. And yeah, I mean, that's arguably where Mises got his idea, you know, the, what we now call Austrian business cycle theory was the debates of the banking and currency schools. They actually put into legislation, you know, Robert Peel, the, the guy who did the, the Bobbies, the police officer, but they had a famous banking reform and Mises just said they made an intellectual mistake is they didn't realize, they just, you know, thought it was bank notes that needed to be 100% back. They didn't realize that the checkbook deposits also. And so they just, you know, so since there were still crises after that, people mm-hmm. discredited the idea. But he said, no, they just, they had an economic error in their thinking. They didn't realize what else needed to be subject to the to the rule. So, yes, that was there. Also, um, in theory of money and credit, I believe that's where it is, where Mises talks about the golden rule of banking and where you have to match mat- the uh, maturities of assets and liabilities. So again, you know, if you're funding a 30-year mortgage, then the the how you're borrowing that the terms of that should be 30 years, right? It doesn't work to be borrowing even like 12-month CDs to be funding 30-year mortgages, hoping oh no, we'll just keep rolling those CDs over because then if interest rates move on you, you could be in trouble. Don't some people on the left uh, argue that the problem here is that we need a rigid separation 
between deposit banks and investment and interest banks? I mean, isn't that something that at least some people on the populist left echo? It, it Yes. So th that is something they say, um, you know, and they, they talk, they try to blame the housing crisis and say, oh, it was the repeal of Glass-Steagall and mm -hmm. you know, under, under Clinton, ironically. Um, so I think Tom Woods did a good job in his book Meltdown to show that that particular explanation for what happened in the housing bubble was was not right but but yeah they they do talk about that um what, what's interesting is i'm pretty sure most people in that debate looking at svp would not say oh they were engaging in investment bank activities like for and most people you know to buy just long-term treasuries i don't think they would say is you know investment banking mm -hmm. but i guess i would have to see you know exactly how are they using in other words what what do they mean when they define the difference between commercial in investment banking, because in a sense, you could argue, well, no, they're investing in long-term assets. They happen to be safe treasury, you know, relatively safe treasuries. But right. if, if that is, you know, for the same reason, you wouldn't want them taking customer deposits and putting them in real estate or, or whatever, putting them in a hedge fund here too, if there's significant interest rate risk, you know, maybe taking customer deposits and putting 30-year treasuries could be arguably classified as investment banking. I'm not sure. Well, I went and took a look at the basic bank of agreement customer agreement, excuse me, Bank of America customer agreement. And so it doesn't call it a deposit agreement. It calls it an account agreement. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was reading through the fine print. I, I was looking for some gotcha language that says, by the way, you're not a depositor. You're a short, you're basically made a short-term callable loan to mm -hmm. Bank of America by putting your two grand paycheck into our checking account every month uh, or every two weeks or whatever it might be. Um, and I don't, I, but even with these new lengthy agreements, I, I, I think the average person does not imagine himself or herself a creditor uh, to their mm -hmm. bank when they make did, a demand deposit. They can, think can I ask Jeff though? Did, did you see that when you just said a short term callable loan? Are you saying they literally said that or you were looking to no, see? No, I'm saying that's my characterization of, of right. the economics mm -hmm. of the transaction. Right. But what did they say? Did, did they call well, it? Well, they, they went on and on, Bob. <laughs> they said a lot ran, of things, we had, to, we had to start recording. But no, I couldn't find a gotcha clause that said, look, uh -huh. folks, to be clear, this is not your money. Mm -hmm. You have now lent it to Bank of America. It's our money, and you're a creditor. And if something bad happens, you're going to have to get in line with all the other creditors. However, there's this thing called FDIC, and it protects you up to $250,000. And since you're an average Joe, don't worry about it. I was looking for something along those lines. And it's, it's pretty opaque. But I will mm -hmm. say they don't call it a deposit agreement. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think that's... And I thought, look, I think it's entirely fair to say, as long as it's properly disclosed, if people want to in, uh, deposit their money in a bank in exchange for a few points of interest, and that bank goes out and leverages it on whatever... A fractional basis it chooses. I don't believe in banking regulations uh, apart from the marketplace itself. I don't believe in federal or state laws on any of this stuff. Um, you know, I, I think it could work, but in the current environment, I mean, it's so incredibly regulated. And, you know, you can't just open a bank any more than you can just start an airline. There, there's an intense mm -hmm. federal overlay here. And, you know, I read this interesting uh, press release, well, not press release, this article from the St. Louis Fed. Uh, from 2021 by William Emmons, a name some of you might know. Slow, steady decline in the number of U.S. banks continues. So, you know, what they used to call wildcat banking back in the day, I mean, in 1921, so 100 years ago, there were, there were 30,456 banks operating in the United States. And think what the population was 100 years ago. It was a fraction of today, far less than half. 
And today we're down to 4,377. So I have a bad feeling that this Silicon Valley Bank thing is going to reduce that number even more. Um, and so I made a joke on uh, my radio show this morning. This is the, the first time perhaps I found myself in agreement with Maxine Waters who was talking to Bloomberg over the weekend about how she doesn't want to see a bunch of bank mergers. She doesn't want to see a lot of smaller savings and loans or credit unions uh, going out of business because this too big to fail mentality, uh, you know, forces further concentration in some, into some bigger banks, which presumably, uh, they haven't been proving it lately, but presumably have uh, more ability to hedge interest rate risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think I had, well, it might even been an article you sent me, Jeff, to be honest. Um, Somebody was making the case that the Basel III Accord made the major banks a little, you know, not so vulnerable to this stuff. And I, I don't know if it's because they had limits on um, the, the maturity of their bond portfolio or what the specific reason was. But that, yes, it was community banks in the U.S. because of their political clout had managed to evade those regulations being imposed. And then that's not why they you know, we were, we're more vulnerable to this sort of stuff. So ironically, even though SVP, I think was like the 16th biggest bank as of three months ago or something, a bunch of community banks are, have similar portfolios, at least, you know, relatively. Um, and so, yeah, they'd be vulnerable to this kind of stuff. You, you mentioned being agree with Maxine Waters, somebody that I'm in agreement with, or at least sympathetic to, I think her name is Nina Turner. I hope I'm not getting it wrong, but I just started following her account and She's always coming out, you know, she, I think she had some, uh, she may have been in state government, I believe at one point. And I think she's out of Illinois. I could be wrong there, but anyway, she's always coming in about, you know, cancel student debt. Uh, healthcare is a right. It should be free. All, you know, all this insulin mm -hmm. should be free or in most, whatever, $10 a month, all these takes that are just in my mind, very naive. But when this stuff happened, she was coming out and saying, well, if they're going to make the SVP depositors whole. Well, let's go mm -hmm. ahead and, you know, bail mm -hmm. out the student loan people. Let's bail out medical debt. Da, da, da. And you can kind of see where she's coming from. And, you know, and she said, Hey, they always, it's like the MMT people. When they say they always are able to come up with money for new fighter jets. Well, how come we can't fund UBI or something? And Fair it, enough. So it's, it's not that it's a good, it's not that they're actually right. It's that, yeah, those other programs are bad too, but still you can see where they're coming from and why like right wing hawkish Republicans who are for bank bailouts, sound like a bunch of hypocrites to them. They don't believe them when they talk about, well, we got to have market discipline. And blah, 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 blah. Yeah, mm -hmm. they, they talk like that when it's about some student borrower, not when it's, you know, uh, a, v, uh, a tech company. Well, I guess what makes me sad about this whole narrative and this conversation that people have been having last week is how disconnected we become from the idea that your ability to borrow money at a particular rate of interest ought to depend on the savings habits of other people in society. In other words, the supply of loanable funds. And I can remember as a boy talking to my grandfather who lived at least the beginning of his life without a social security number. And uh, when he bought a house and went to the bank to borrow money, it was a small local bank. There was no uh, FICO score credit check at this point. I guess it would have been the 40s, maybe the early 50s. And so he, he was basically lent the money on the strength of the time he had at one job and his general uh, reputation, uh, maybe even in the local neighborhood that banked there for someone who was had a good job and, you know, wasn't uh, dissolute or drunk or whatever. And yeah, he seems like a good guy and he'll pay us back. I mean, and that's, you know, two generations removed from me. 
So we're in this world now where we, you know, we want to look at things theoretically. And I think this is a, a criticism of Austrians that, that has some, some bite to it. You know, it, it's, you know, time preference is very, very nice way to understand how interest rates would operate in a market environment. But we're so far from that. When we look at the actions, our central banks and our regulators and this, this ludicrous FDIC took over the weekend. I mean, we're so far from that. Money has become so unhinged from its, from, you know, savings from its source, the, the, our ability to borrow. Um, I just wonder if it takes some sort of calamity to ever get back there. Yeah, I, you're right how those things have evolved over time. Um, I just want to circle back to it as you, you mentioned how it would be, you can't just open a bank now though, just like you can't open an airline, right? So it'd be silly to, to complain about the current thing. And then for someone to say, well, if you don't like it, you know, you don't like JetBlue, then go open your own mm -hmm. airline that, it's a bit obtuse to talk like that. Um, and, and yes, and I, I had mentioned it a minute ago when we were sitting discussing, but I just made me sure the listeners understood. So right now that if you were to operate a hundred percent reserve bank and part of what you're selling to customers is the idea that no, your money really is, is safe here. Mm -hmm. Well, if it's the average Joe who has less than 250,000 in deposits, they're going to say, well, my money's basically safe anywhere. And yeah. so the, you know, the, so the government with that backstop and also too, depending on how it works, you know, I don't, I'm not sure the exact regulations, but if you had, were going to be hundred percent reserve bank and wanted to be on equal footing and have the same access and, you know, access, but if you had to be part of FDIC and you had to pay into the insurance fund in case a bank, you know, gets in trouble, then you're also, you know what I mean? Like that should be at least one of the benefits. If you're not, if you have hundred percent reserves that you're not having to, to pay insurance on a bank run. But, you know, they, they may, depending on the rules, it might have to, you might have to pay it anyway. So there's there's lots of little things like that to show this really isn't just an open terrain free market. And, and you're right, Jeff. So some people, in response to my Twitter thread that you alluded to, were saying to me, oh, so you want the government to come in and mandate 100% reserve? And no, I don't, um, just because they would screw that up, too. It's, but I think that, yeah, if you did get rid of all these backstops, I mean, what the whole function of the central bank was supposed to be a lender of last resort, right? The Fed came in after the 1907 panic mm -hmm. to prevent, you know, ostensibly prevent that. And they haven't done a great job in preventing panics, but you know, that's the idea. So if you have FDIC, you have the central bank waiting in the wings, one of whose main purposes is to be a lender of last resort, that's fueling this stuff. So if you got rid of all those backstops and insurance programs, I think that in practice, there would be market alternatives. I mean, maybe it would be a continuum. Maybe there would be a, a bank that took in the deposits and put them in one month treasuries or the equivalent, right? So yeah, maybe it wouldn't literally be sitting in a vault, but it would be pretty short-term stuff. And so if things got a little hairy, they might raise the you know, reserve requirement or the, the amount they kept on reserve, reserve ratios, and really pull back the maturity of their sub. Whereas now, again, there's lots of reasons in place that they don't have as much market discipline. Well, I think we have to leave it at that, Bob. I want to link to your study guide to the theory of money and credit. It's got some great sections, uh, I think, that are, that, uh, you know, Mises wrote that book over 100 years ago. It might still be the best uh, single explainer, at least from the Austrian perspective, of how money and credit, uh, two different things, ought to work uh, versus how they should work. And I also want to link to an article I wrote maybe a year or two ago about how the Fed is now the ultimate bank, how it operates without constraints. And uh, that, that article seems almost quaint now after COVID and uh, mm -hmm. all the uh, well, mo you know, monetary run-up uh, we've seen since then. So uh, that is SVB in a nutshell. Hope you enjoyed the show. We will be back next week on the Human Action Podcast. Thanks for joining us. 
check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org. Thank you.